This is exactly right. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a journalist, author, and podcast host. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired investigator with experience solving some of America's most notorious cold cases. Together, we host Buried Bones, a historical true crime podcast on the Exactly Right Network. Each week, we examine a different case from history and use our years of experience and 21st century forensics to bring new insights into these very old tragedies. Like the time the Sausage King of Chicago's wife went missing in 1897. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Follow Buried Bones wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. Eventually, there was this conspiracy against him, one that almost certainly involved the cooperation of the U.S. government. In 1856, Strang was murdered by some of his own followers. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. My name is Miles Harvey, and I'm an author and a professor of English at DePaul University in Chicago, where I am the director of the DePaul Publishing Institute. Miles Harvey wrote a book called The King of Confidence, and it's about a 19th century con artist and false prophet named Joseph Strang. While Brigham Young was organizing the Mormon mass exodus to Utah, Strang convinced some of the devout to follow him to a new colony in Michigan. This is an unconventional true crime tale. In the landscape of criminals, the ones who are closest to my heart are the 19th century grifter, con man, charlatan, the 90,000 different names for him. And you have really honed in on one that I find fascinating. So in one way, this book is just about a fascinating guy who tried to start his own kingdom on American soil. His name was James J. Strang. In 1850, he led a group of rogue Mormon disciples to a little island in the middle of Lake Michigan and declared himself king of earth and heaven. In another way, I think this book, it is about how con men can influence American society and can take hold in American society and under what circumstances. And that's one of the things that really interested me. So where do we start with Joseph Strang, who's the central character here? So we start in western New York in a place called the Burned Over District. And I love that name, Kate, because it refers to the religious fires and the social and political fires that were ripping through western New York like wildfire after the Erie Canal was built. This is the home of just absolutely one of the great religious revivals in our country, And this is the environment that this guy grows up in. So he comes from this intensely Baptist home and writes in his journals, which we're lucky enough to have from the time he was in his late teens to early 20s, about all the revivals going on around him and the tents coming through with preachers on them. Um, And he also writes that he's a total atheist. 
But one of the cool things about these journals that he left is he also notes when he talks about religion, people really listen and he can really talk a good game and really capture people's imagination. So I think the Burned Over District was a great place for him to come from in a certain way. I think it gave birth to people like him. There were all sorts of weird, self-declared prophets running around. And I think he saw that. If you're going to be a prophet, it was a great training ground, even if you're a cynical prophet who doesn't believe in God. What can we liken that to now to give us context? What would be a good comparison? Can you think of anything? Sure. I mean, the antebellum period was like our own period, a period of intense change and upheaval. Antebellum means before the war. So this is before the Civil War. So there's this political stuff going on, right? Slavery is becoming a big issue. But there's also all sorts of other upheaval that I think, again, has some comparison to now. This is the period where the photograph comes in. And so all of a sudden, our relationship to time is fundamentally different. You can start to freeze time. It's also when the telegraph comes in. And so suddenly, the world is connected. Suddenly, you can have conversations like we're having now, Kate, where you can instantaneously communicate with someone. But it's also the railroad coming in. And so that makes America a smaller and more mobile place. And one of the results of all of these changes and the Industrial Revolution is that we're suddenly in a society of strangers where people really don't know how to trust each other. You're not on the farm that your family's been on for years. And I think that's very similar to what we have now. It was really interesting when I was researching this book to think about sort of the upheaval that our digital world has caused in ways that I think we don't even think about every day. And I think in these times of massive, massive change, reality becomes porous. And so this period is the period where we get the term confidence man. We know exactly where that word started. It starts in 1849 in a newspaper of New York, and it spreads all over the country really quickly. And the reason it spread is because there were so many people who were hustlers taking advantage of this porous reality. Let's pick it up with what we know about James Strang. So we have these journals from a couple of decades, is that right, over his life or a decade over his life? A shorter time, but a really great time. This is when he's just sort of coming of age. And he writes a lot of stuff in code because he's so afraid of being found out as a person with desires that don't mean the standards of the time. How do we then eventually shift to this idea that he can become a false prophet and manipulate a large group of people? I think there's always with Strang, uh, and it's one of the things that made him so much fun to write about, the idealist and the opportunist working side by side and not even aware of each other's presence. He started out in Western New York as a total failure. He attempted to be a lawyer and did okay for a while, but then, you know, he was a disreputable guy, and so people started not using him. So then he became a newspaper man, and he failed at that too. And finally, he had to leave Western New York because he sold some land that didn't exist to someone else and sort of had to fly by night. <laughs> And so he was pretty much a failure at everything he did. But, you know, I write in the book that his failures set him up 
beautifully to be a prophet. So he had this experience with crowd manipulation techniques of the preachers who came through Western New York. He had this sort of um, ability to manipulate the law and to navigate the legal system. That came in hugely handy for him. And he knew the post office. So that at, at the time was the big media in this country. It was like knowing cable news or something. And he was really good at that. And so he goes to the Midwest. And after he's kicked out of New York, and he winds up in Nauvoo, which was then the central place of the Mormon church, the fledgling Mormon church, and he converts to Mormonism. And I don't know if he was sincere or not. I think that's one of the big question marks. Shortly after he converts to Mormonism, Joseph Smith gets murdered. One of the things to think about the Mormon church at this time, it's obviously a newer religion, but we sort of think of the Mormon church as something old-fashioned or something, I think, a lot of people. But at this time, I think it's it's better to think of it as this cutting-edge, kind of hip religion. Mormonism at the time is kind of brilliant. The Book of Mormon is maybe as a, a good read, not so great. I mean, uh, Mark Twain called it uh, chloroform in print. But <laughs> as a literary event, it's extraordinary. Like, what the Book of Mormon does is it says the Bible is ongoing— and it's playing out in the Americas and in North America. And I think to people in this troubled, confusing time, that must have been really an exciting prospect. And so the, the, the center of the church, when Strang comes to the Midwest, is Nauvoo, Illinois, on the Mississippi River. And at the time, the city is as big or bigger than Chicago. It's the sort of hub of activity, not only for the church in Illinois, but it's just this, it's just a metropolis, really. You know, 10,000 people for a frontier town. It's, it's a big town with big buildings and lots going on. And I still don't know if Strang was just sort of attracted to this idea of being self-made that he saw in Smith. He met Smith, this kind of self-actualization, which really would have fit with, not only with him, but with a lot of people at that time or if he really had a conversion to the church, or if he was completely cynical, as some people later claimed, and saw that this was a, a good con that he could take advantage of. So in any case, in, in 1843, Joseph Smith is murdered by an anti-Mormon mob in Western Illinois. And just a few months later, Strang receives a letter from Joseph Smith. Modern experts think it's a forgery. And mm -hmm. it pretty much hands the church over to Strang, which would be like, I don't know, you know, I'm a resident of the city of Chicago. It's sort of being like the handing over control of Illinois to me, you know. <laughs> so he was just a, a, a newbie in the church. So this letter is a forgery probably, but it's a very good one because he knew what he was doing as a, as a postmaster, as a former postmaster. And he started taking the letter around at, to Mormon gatherings. And at first people were like, uh-uh. We ain't playing, you know, like, I don't care if you have some letter from Joseph Smith. We don't believe it's from him. But Strang was, he had an ability, like a lot of con men do, to convince people of really unlikely things. And he just kept at it. And in 1845, in this little town he was living in, Burlington, Wisconsin, which is about two hours northwest of Chicago, some of his followers 
dug up some brass plates from a hill. Sure enough, those plates had a script on them that no one in the world could read besides one man. And luckily, that man happened to be living in Burlington, Wisconsin. His name was uh, James Jesse Strang. (laughs) And luckily, Strang, after some hard work, was able to translate those plates. And Kate, you will be surprised to learn that the plates sort of announced Strang as the correct inheritor of the church. And I think the plates convinced a few more people. They really, that's where Strang first started getting a lot of, well, I don't want to say a lot. He started getting press and national press, and he eventually got a lot of press, and he was a brilliant manipulator of media. And so his colony took off from there in Burlington, in this little town in, in the prairies of Wisconsin. He drew a lot of Joseph Smith's top disciples, top leadership of the Mormon church, including for a while, one of Smith's brothers. The trouble in Burlington was that people got up there and some of them quickly soured on Strang. They saw him as the fraud that he may have been, but then a lot of them stuck around and sort of started newspapers decrying him. And some of the people who Strang would have counted on as as followers left. And so I think he just decided the prairies of Wisconsin were too porous and he eventually aimed at moving his colony to Beaver Island, which is in northernmost Lake Michigan, a fascinating place. And so eventually he moved his entire colony up there where he promptly set up a pirate colony. (laughs) Okay, hold on. One thing that I read that I thought was really interesting was that you know, you're talking about the letter and he's passing this letter around and saying, I, you know, I'm taking over from Joseph Smith. That did not resonate as much as these relics that were found, clearly that he made. So why was that? Is there a history to that of finding relics and presenting them to the devout and getting validation that way? Absolutely. The Mormon church starts with Joseph Smith digging up these golden plates in western New York in this burned-over district that Strang also hails from, and translating these plates as the Book of Mormon. And so when Strang had his people dig up these plates, he was very consciously copying the example of Joseph Smith, assuming that he didn't actually discover these plates in a hillside in Burlington, Wisconsin, <laughs> thanks to the intercession of an angel who, who came, like with Smith, and told him where to find these plates. And so I think that that helped him. I also just think Strang was a persuasive guy. You know, um, there's an incredible story I describe in the book where a really important leader in the Mormon church is preaching and on the road and, and runs into Strang. And they have a little a preach-off, kind of. <laughs> preach-off. Not only have this crowd of Mormons won over to Strang and instantly joined his church, but the guy said, you know, I was pretty soundly defeated by this guy. I think he is the real prophet. Wow. I write in the book, you know, he was a, a short and bald and a little bit odd-looking guy, but he had this thing called confidence. He could exude confidence. Charisma goes a long way in this country. It really does. Yeah. People just were drawn to him in a way that in times of great upheaval, I think we're looking for someone who offers clear, simple answers to complex questions and says, as Strang did, you're the chosen, you're the elect. But I also think as with 
other parts of the Mormon church, he was offering something really much more profound. The people who moved up to Beaver Island, at least a lot of them, because he collected both con men and true believers and some combination of the two, really believed, the true believers did anyway, that they were bringing about the second coming of Christ on Beaver Island. Now, if you go to Beaver Island today, it's a very nice spot, still very rustic. You might be hard-pressed to believe that this was where Jesus Christ had selected for his return, but I think a lot of people who followed Strang really believed that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints comes from the idea that many people believed that the second coming was going to happen in their lifetime. And Strang played on that brilliantly. When James Strang starts this pirate colony in Michigan. Where are the other Mormons with Brigham Young? Yeah. So Strang was probably Young's biggest competitor for succession in the church. When we look at it now, it seems ridiculous. Brigham Young pulled off this amazing feat in American history where he moves people from Nauvoo, where they were being persecuted and would have been slaughtered probably, into the West to Salt Lake City on this incredible journey into literally unmapped territory. I mean, it was crazy. But the fall of Nauvoo really benefited Strang. He was able to convince a lot of Smith's followers that, among other things, it was just a a heck of a lot easier to move to Burlington, Wisconsin (laughs) than it was to go into the uncharted West. Young sort of posed himself first as a really good technocrat. You know, I can run the church. And Strang realized that what people wanted was a prophet. And he said, yeah, 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 Young's a good technocrat and I'm the prophet of God. And I think people were drawn to that. And so Strang gathered people, but he also was brilliant at, you know, he'd do these tours of the East Coast where he'd he'd gather money and support. And the other thing to keep in mind about Strang was he was absolutely brilliant about manipulating the media. This was a newspaper boom. I don't want to make an overly simplistic comparison, Kate, but it was really like the internet revolution in really significant ways. Newspapers are growing all over the country, and they depend on this system of exchange papers. They could mail newspapers to each other free because of U.S. postal law. And so they would take news stories from other people's papers and put them in their own paper. So like a wire service. It's like it's like a wire service or not unlike Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, right? And sometimes they would say, well, this is from the New Orleans Picayune. But often they would just slap them in there in the way that when we read Facebook, we may not know where that information comes from exactly. And Strang was realized, I mean, a lot of people realized the import of this in one way. They realized that New York and Washington could now reach the whole country and the provinces. Strang realized it worked the other way, that from this little place on Beaver Island, he could reach New York, Washington, and the whole country. So he was brilliant at manipulating the media. The first thing he did when he got to both of his utopian colonies was to start a newspaper. Oh, wow. And he was a very good writer of a certain kind. I mean, he's very good wordsmith, Kate. Uh, as a journalist, you, you'd have respect. <laughs> I had respect. And he was very good at putting out newspapers. And so then he'd send these newspapers out all over the country. And sure enough, stories would start appearing about this wonderful utopian colony on this island. Wow. This was also the age of P.T. Barnum, and Strang was very much like Barnum. I mean, I'm sure he knew about Barnum, and I think at one point copied, you know, a a book a little bit after Barnum. He had this American Museum in New York, which was basically a a museum of curiosities and and oddities and freaks. Barnum would display a mermaid, famously, at the American Museum, and people would pay good money to go see it, and 
a lot of them would come out saying, well, that's not really a mermaid. That's a monkey tied to or stitched to a fish. And Barnum's response was not, oh, my God, no, you're so wrong. How dare you say that? I'm going to sue you for libel. He was like, really? You don't think it's a mermaid? Well, I'll tell you what, why don't you come back tomorrow and bring your family and pay for tickets at the American <laughs> Museum smart. again and see what grandma thinks. Does, does she think that's a mermaid? That's what their opinion yeah. is. <laughs> and so, so Strang was a little bit like that. He would plant these stories. I mean, at one point in this county he had in Wisconsin, there were stories on the East Coast that it had a population of, I think, 100,000. And it's not clear that he planted that, but it's, it's quite possible that he did. And so he was wow. sort of brilliant at manipulating this new system in the way, for instance, that a, a Russian troll farm might be brilliant at manipulating Facebook because he had a clear understanding and way ahead of his time, I think, of how that technology worked. One of the things I've really been thinking about since I wrote the book is how often con men are just technologically a little bit ahead of the rest of us. There's a wonderful book called Charlatan. It's about this guy, Dr. Brinkley, who was the goat testicle doctor in the 19... 19- I'm not making this up. During the Depression and before, convinced thousands of American men who were insecure about impotence and their sexual performance that what they needed was to have goat testicles sewed into their scrotums. And the thing about Dr. Brinkley that was so brilliant is that he was eventually kicked out of the AMA or denounced by the AMA and and actually banned from the U.S. in terms of broadcast. But he is now known not just as a a brilliant con man, and a lot of people died as a result of his... Goat testicles? Goat testicles, (laughs) yeah. But also as a founder of early radio as a pioneer. He started this huge station first in Kansas and then on the Mexican border when he was banned from broadcasting in Kansas. Among other things, he's considered one of the great early pioneers of country music programming on radio. So like Strang, I think a lot of these guys, it's not even that they have great technical knowledge. It's just that they have this sort of Marshall McLuhan ability to see how media is going to change things. It's an intuition, it seems like. Like a brilliant kind of big picture kind of thinker. I mean, one of the things that was fun about writing about Strang is that he was nobody's fool. I mean, I think he was a narcissist and if I had to vote con man or profit, I'd definitely vote con man. We're talking with Miles Harvey about 19th century confidence man Joseph Strang and his powers of persuasion within the Mormon church. And I wondered to him why Strang did all of this. What is the motivation for him? Is it purely money? We get into some of his illegal activities, but surely are easier ways than convincing thousands of people to follow you to to Michigan. Is there money in this? I think there was money for a while. This is what's so great about Strang because he's such a contradiction in this way. Again, this mix of idealism and opportunism. So on the one hand, I think there's the sheer joy of having people think you're a prophet. He was, in fact, running a pirate colony. Part of that was just to feed people on the island. But he certainly had some wealth for a while. Also, he had, by the time he died, five wives. I have no idea to what degree he believed that that was his religious duty and to what degree that was some sort of pleasurable thing to him. I I, I wouldn't comment on that. You know, he got power and he loved power. Sometimes he used power for good. For instance, he was elected twice to the Michigan legislature. 
Did he get in fraudulently? You bet he did. <laughs> but once he got there, and this is one of the things that's just so mysterious about this guy and so interesting is, you know, this guy was a lifelong abolitionist. And once he got to the Michigan legislature, first of all, he really impressed even his fiercest opponents, right? They were like, boy, this guy's smart. You know, he's a trained lawyer. He knows how the parliamentary system works. He's really good at cutting deals with people. Wow, he's an impressive guy. We wouldn't have expected that. But he also fought hard for the rights of African Americans. Hmm. Strang's abolitionism is the one true belief I know he had because it was the one thing he did which wasn't in his best interest. Totally altruistic, basically, right? Yeah, and at a time when—so he his second term was when the Republicans, who are abolitionists, sweep to power in Michigan. It was pretty much the start of the Republican Party in the United States. Very exciting time. And Strang's a Democrat, a lifetime Democrat. And he works with them hard on securing, among other things, what's called a personal liberty law, which was a, to undercut the Fugitive Slave Act and make it harder to take African-Americans back to the South. And at one point, he spoke on the floor of the Michigan legislature for two hours about the rights of African-Americans. But that didn't please his own party at all. And right. the Republicans weren't that impressed either because they had the numbers. They didn't need Strang. And so it really, he was shooting himself in the foot by doing it. Yeah. And yet he did it. And he, he might have been risking within his own group of people, of followers, right? I mean, I'm assuming not everyone shared those views. No. And Strang had African-American members of his church, I think, 130 years before. There were officially African-American members of the, huh. the mainstream Mormon church. So he's really kind of impressive in that way. And so there's this dark side to him, evil side to him, but there's also this altruistic side to him. It's one of the things that made him so much fun to write up. About. Well, let me tell you, at this point in the story, all I'm hearing is a guy who's a sweet talker, who's doing nice things for people of color because of his own personal beliefs, who is saying, I will take care of you to a group of followers, and he takes him to Michigan. I'm not seeing a dark side so far. Let me give you an example. In 1849 and 1850, he traveled all over the East Coast with a young man who we have a photograph of in his suit, pretty looking young man, who he introduced to everyone as his nephew and personal secretary. In fact, <laughs> this person <laughs> was named Elvira Field and, it, and she was Strang's first, what they call plural wife. In other words, he was, he was already married to a, a woman from when he was a young man. Strang didn't want his wife to know about this other wife. And he'd also been on the record for years as an anti-polygamist. And so his decision was to travel with this woman dressed in man's clothing. Did they fool everyone? No, they did not, Kate. <laughs> Some people were like, why is Strang traveling with a woman in man's clothing? Oh, let me guess. They're going back to the hotel and sharing a bed together. But other people were fooled. And part of that had to do with the semiotics of dress at the time. Women were wearing these huge signifiers of femininity, you know, all these petticoats, et cetera, these ornate clothes. And I think some people just could not accept yeah. the idea of a woman in man's clothes. So there's this whole gender stuff that's really, really fascinating. But I think Strang also just got a kick out of fooling people. It got some thrill of the power of, I'm not saying he was laughing. I'm saying 
He did this enough where it was clear that there was some thrill. And so after that tour is when the summer of 1850, on a ceremony on Beaver Island, he is pronounced king of <laughs> earth and heaven. He actually had, you know, there's scepters involved and all sorts of ornate stuff in a half-finished log hut. This went out all over the country and a lot of people laughed at it. The U.S. government took it seriously. Miller Fillmore, the U.S. president, eventually took it seriously enough where he sent in the U.S. Navy's first iron-hulled warship to raid Beaver Island <laughs> and bring Strang back to justice. And again, I am not making this up. Because it, because America will never see another king, I'm assuming, is what the, <laughs> what the threat was. That's right. Well, I think it was just this idea of a quasi-independent kingdom on U.S. Yeah. soil. Yeah. And of course, you know, by that time, there were a lot of complaints about him literally launching raids on places like Chicago. <laughs> His boats would sweep down and people would sweep ashore and start stealing stuff. They took him very seriously. And I think he just also was, yeah, kind of a threat to our sense of self as Americans, you know. How can this guy get away with it on the frontier? And it's because you could get away with a lot on the frontier. It was an in-between place where partly rules applied and partly they didn't. And all sorts of forgers, con men, thieves of all kind were drawn to the frontier for that reason. But in 1851, the Navy <laughs> invaded Strang's Island. In fact, the anticipated battle between the Strang forces and, and the militia guys on the, uh, on the Navy ship did not materialize. Strang surrendered and encouraged some of his followers to surrender. And it looked like it was going to be the end of the story, right? He's put up on federal trial in Detroit. For what? What are the charges specifically? They tried getting him on the sexy charges first, which was turned out to be a mistake. Counterfeiting. Wait, counterfeiting is a sexy charge? There was no mass murder involved in this story. So all I got for you is a killing and uh, a con man and, and possibly some counterfeiting. That's so, plenty. Yeah. <laughs> he was a good lawyer and he gave a really good speech on his own behalf. And I think the prosecution kind of screwed up. He was squatting on government property uh, on Beaver Island that had been until right before he got there occupied by Native Americans hmm. who had just recently turned it over to the U.S. government in a treaty. And he was mining the place for lumber. So those are the charges they could have got him on, poaching for lumber, but they didn't. And Strang was found shockingly <laughs> innocent. And so, you know, one of the delicious ironies of many delicious ironies in the story is that when Millard Fillmore left office in 1853, the king, who the president tried to oust from power, was still very much in power. And that experience did not discourage him from continuing his nefarious operations out of Beaver Island. He would send ships out and they would stop at ports on Lake Michigan at night. They'd come in and they'd do these kind of lightning raids and they would steal stuff. And he also sent groups out through the countryside all over the Midwest horse stealing. Yeah. Horses were just hugely valuable yeah. and essential items. And so it was a big deal. And one of his very top aides is caught horse stealing in this little town in Ohio. And Strang comes to town and there's a, like many local newspapers at the time, there's a wonderfully funny editor who's a great writer and just makes it so much fun to read these things who says, oh, King Strang is in town. I wonder what for. I sure wonder if that guy's going to stay in jail. And sure enough, eventually there was a jailbreak. Strang's lieutenant escaped and returned to Beaver Island. His level of manipulation 
manipulation extends to his personal life also, right? You said that he married several women. Yeah, he came in as posing himself as the anti-polygamist prophet. And he drew some of the people who joined his church, joined specifically for that. They'd been living in Nauvoo and saw what was going on there. He eventually married a total of five women, four of whom were pregnant at the time of his murder in 1856. Elvira Field, the woman who had dressed in men's clothing, she and other women on Beaver Island began wearing pantaloons, which very quickly became a symbol of the women's movement, right? We call them bloomers because Amelia Bloomer, one of the great proto-feminists, started wearing them. And it was this national scandal. It was a symbol of a woman who was asserting her authority and rights. Well, the women on Beaver Island were wearing these a year before Amelia Bloomer donned them. These pantaloons became a big deal (laughs) on Beaver Island, and Strang ordered all women to wear pantaloons. I think it was him asserting his power. There wasn't this word then, but we know from modern cults, which were just coming in at this time, and Strang's group certainly qualifies, is that one of the ways leaders assert authority is through enforcing dress codes. Well, people resisted that dress code, and it became this symbol of whether you were for Strang or against him. If you wore bloomers or if you encouraged your wife to wear bloomers, you were for him. And if you didn't, you were against him. And if that sounds goofy, (laughs) I just would refer to the way masks have become politicized in our own time. But I also think polygamy was the undercurrent of it. There were only a few of the leaders on Beaver Island who were polygamists, and there was great resentment. The bloomers, the pantaloons, gave people an easier way of expressing their rage towards Strang. And eventually there was this conspiracy against him. We have this buildup where he is doing things that some people don't like. The of Michigan doesn't appreciate him having this colony. So how do we get from that to murder? There were some guys on the island. He drew all these sort of con men figures to the island and, and, and some former true believers became, you know, disaffected as happens in these groups and really angry with him, furious with him. And they started conspiring to kill him. And eventually they went out to Chicago and elsewhere to recruit support. Then they armed up and came back. And in 1856, the USS Michigan, which is that iron-hulled warship that had raided the island earlier, shows up on Beaver Island. And by this point, Strang has sort of a friendly relationship with the captain. It's, it's kind of no big deal that it's there. They're just kind of checking in. It'd be like the local policeman knocking on your door saying, is everything okay? But in this case, I think there was clear involvement in the U.S. government's part. So Strang sees that ship coming, and he, he hadn't been expecting it. And apparently, according to one report, he said to some followers, oh, this, this is not good. But the guy who ran the ship sent or a representative down to get Strang and said, say, hey, bring Strang back. I want to talk to him. The guy goes to Strang's house. Strang goes with him. They walk away arm in arm, which is sort of a symbol of friendship in the 19th century. And they walk a short way to the boat. And so on the pier at Beaver Island are these huge rows and rows and piles of lumber. They would sell this to the steamboats. And sort of in a a tunnel of lumber, Strang walks in with this guy arm in arm towards the ship and a couple of followers follow him and all of a sudden open fire and start shooting and they don't put him out of his misery at first so one of them beats him with the butt of his gun and still doesn't put him out of his misery and uh, these guys run aboard the USS Michigan and escape 
and they're never prosecuted. No one ever went to jail for it. He initially didn't die. He was paralyzed from the waist down, and he was taken back to Burlington, Wisconsin, his first utopian colony, where he, he finally died in 1856, a few weeks after he was shot. Some of his wives and followers were shocked. They thought that he was going to be born again and that he was going to come back to them in the flesh. But it didn't happen, <laughs> as it turns out. With the leader out of power, there's this vigilante raid on the island, and it, it was brutal. The Mormons are forced into boats with only the clothes on their backs. All their possessions are taken. They have so many enemies in the area now. They've alienated all the local fishermen, the Native Americans, but, but also just all sorts of other people. And so they're dispersed in the Midwest. And, and Strang's church was never really reformed. There's still some Strangites living. And uh, I met at least one of them in Burlington, Wisconsin. I've met some others online. But he didn't name a successor. And he, I don't think there could have been a successor. I mean, this is kind of a singular human being. The church was Strang. And I don't think there was a way to easily transfer it to someone else. This story, what does it represent in the tapestry of American storytelling? This is an odd man who was a really good talker, who manipulated what turned out to be not a huge group, but he manipulated them to such an extent that it's alarming. If there's a James Strang in 1856, there certainly are many James Strangs now. And what's wrong with that? One of the things that fascinated me about this is I became convinced that there are times in history, in American history, where these sorts of people thrive. And those times are times, you know, like our own, frankly, where we're not quite sure of our bearings. You know, people say to me, oh, you know, we've never been so divided. And I'm like, well, I got to tell you, yeah. <laughs> before the Civil War, we were more divided. And during the Civil War, we were more divided. But I think there is a comparison there. I think that that we live in a time where there's just been radical change in our culture. And I think People like Strang are always going to survive in those sorts of moments. So we talked about some of the good. What is his legacy within the Mormon church? Is there is there a footnote? You know, at one time in 1853, Strang headed for Washington, and there were rumors, and Brigham Young's top lieutenants were worried about it, that Strang was going to be named governor of Utah. So the idea that, what? you know, he— <laughs> Yeah. How, how <laughs> yes. that? He's not even in Utah. Wait, how would that happen? A new president had come in and Strang was going to D.C. And, and I'm not even sure he, he made it because uh, he made an ill-fated retreat to his hometown in western New York and was exposed as a, a massive fraud and thrown in jail and all sorts of other things. And I think he might have just beat a hasty retreat back to Beaver Island. I can't find any evidence that he made it to D.C. But people were very worried about this. So as far as his legacy goes, there have been good books on Strang before, but they always treated him like a footnote to Mormon history, which is what the church, I think, thinks of him, if that. I saw him as a lightning rod for brilliant movements and crazy religions of the mid-19th century. And so to me, it wasn't a Mormon story, but a very, very American story. Well, it's sort of the American dream, a little twisted, right? He is just someone who is a good talker with a dream. 
I am also drawn to characters who are complex. I'm so interested in the forked road. And at what point is this person who could have been president, who had that sort of charisma and intelligence and drive, when did they take the wrong fork? I love your metaphor of a forked road. You know, I often think about Strang in comparison to Abraham Lincoln, because these are total contemporaries and their lives went along parallel paths for a long time. Both were country guys. This was a great period of self-made men, as they called them, self-made individuals. And these guys were both prime examples. So both started in these small towns. They're just farm boys. I mean, you know, with no hopes of becoming famous. They both become country lawyers, which means they're educated with other lawyers, not in law school. Mm -hmm. They both become postmasters, which are really important jobs then. And you really learn a lot about the country from being a postmaster. They both were state representatives, and they both were these total self-actualizers. And I often think about how Lincoln was able to take that and use it for greatness and, and for the good, not just for his own greatness. And Strang, who had some of the same impulses, for instance, about abolition, couldn't do it. I don't have a clear answer. I would say one thing is clear that Strang was more rigid than Lincoln. Lincoln could adapt to situations better, changing his views on what to do about the plight of African Americans, right. for instance. But I also think Strang was a con man who was doing stuff for himself. Yeah. Not that Lincoln didn't have an ego or enjoy power, but Lincoln was doing it for the rest of us. And within the system, he was willing to work within the system and Strain created his own system. I would say to people that my own times helped me understand Strang because I, I live in a time where truth is very, very much contested. But Strang helped me understand my own times. That was one of the, the real blessings of many of this project. I felt like I had a, a little clearer view of this period where truth is very, very unstable in my own life. I had a clearer view of how and why that works. On the next episode of Wicked Words. The day that Bokaram swept into Chibok, scooping up the 276 girls, was a day like every other day. This is a deeply, deeply religious group of girls who ultimately believed with their faith that they would make it home. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Casts.